All right. Hey, everybody. You just heard intro music by Shane Roderick. He was one of our honorable mentions. So thanks for the uh, entry there, Shane, and congrats on the honorable mention. It is Ep Percussion Podcast. I'm Casey Cangelosi. It's episode 337. We're recording on September 15th. Uh, with me, one of the satellite co-hosts and in his new new gig, Office looks awesome. Hey, Brian Nosny. Hey, thanks for having me as always. You bring all those gongs with you or were they already there? Uh, these lower ones were already here. These are actually Christopher Dean's. These really? These ones are actually Christopher Dean's. I was able to buy some from, uh, from Janice, so I had a, a few instruments of his. So happy about that. Cool. Yeah, don't hand those out easily. No. Hey, give us a quick life update where you are. I don't know if all our listeners know you're at a new job now. So I am now in Mobile, Alabama, uh, as new director of percussion studies at the University of South Alabama. So uh, having a grand old time adjusting. Uh, it's still very, very hot down here, and I guess I'll get used to that. But otherwise, uh, really excited, happy to be here. Kids are great. Place is great. Everyone's happy. I, I couldn't complain. I'm happy. I'm happy that, uh, well, I don't care where you are. I'm just happy you're here on the show, just to be frank. But fair. That's <laughs> fair. That's very fair. <laughs> it's good to see you. Hey, listen, quick quick news segment. I um, I, I bumped into someone wishing the, the great and late Neil Peart uh, birthday this week. His birthday was just a few days ago on the 12th. And so I thought it'd be a fun excuse to uh, reveal and also repeat some fun facts about uh, Neil Peart, if you don't know. So Brian, we're gonna play this in the uh, Honor Ben's uh, um, Is It True or Is It False game called Bocked or Knocked. So basically here's a fact about Neil Peart and is it correct or is it false? So for, uh, we'll start with an easy one just so everyone knows how the game works. So Neil Peart was the drummer for the band Led Zeppelin. Bach or Knocked, Brian? I was going to say false because I'm going to screw this up. Otherwise. No, 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 no. Knocked. That'd be knocked. 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 Yeah. So that was yeah. he knocked. That's right. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. He's the drummer for Rush. Yeah. Very, very good. Okay. So now you know how the game works. Here's yeah. number two. Neil Peart has been the only drummer for Rush ever, right? Just like a lot of bands, they have personnel lineup and ch lineup changes, singer changes, bass player changes, drummer changes. Uh, Neil Peart was the only drummer for Rush. I believe that's knocked. I want to say he was the second drummer. Wow, good job. Yes, spot on. So the first drummer was a guy named John Rutsey who played on the first album and left due to illness and creative difference. So saith the internet. So yeah, you're exactly right. He is the second. And then from then on, he was the only drummer. And then his death two years ago was, uh, yeah, the end of the band. Sure. Because um, he was such an important influence, not only, of course, the, the drummer, but uh, principal lyricist, songwriter. Mm -hmm. He, he talked uh, to, to Getty Lee how to shape his phrases and even what pitches to sing. I mean, he, Neil Peart was like really, really important to the band. Mm -hmm. uh, next one. When arriving to his audition for the band, all right, now that we know he's the second drummer, he showed up with his drums, not in drum cases, but in garbage cans in his little car. <sighs> Bocked or knocked? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll say bocked. You're right. This is too easy. Too easy. Yep, exactly right. Yep, supposedly that is the, uh, the truth. Yep, in garbage cans. Uh, one of Neil's nicknames was, quote, the student because of his humble desire to always learn and grow. True or false? I'm going to say that's knocked because I've always heard him referred to as the professor. Wow, dude, you're really good. I'm so glad I picked this. You're like so spot on. You're exactly right. His nickname, we, I promise we did not, like, I did, gave Brian... <laughs> Zero heads up about this. We mentioned it briefly before we pushed record. That's exactly correct. The professor, because of his academic attitude towards just music and art in general, and according to Dave Grohl, drummer and front, uh, sorry, drummer of Foo Fighters, sorry, frontman of Foo Fighters, <laughs> drummer for Nirvana, mm -hmm. uh, he says he called the professor because we all learned from him. So. True. There's your news for today. Happy birthday to the great Neil Peart. Mm -hmm. And thanks, Brian. Nice job. I think you hey, uh, one in a row. Yeah, one, one in a row. It's a good record. Stop right there. Right. I'm done. Retired. Yep, all done. So, y'all, listen, our guest today, she is just a, a really important composer to me, big influence to my visual works. I feel like I, I mention her a lot just in conversation and talking about composition and talking about 
where a lot of uh, uh, my ideas are inspired by. Um, she's really like a, a complete multimedia artist, uh, dance, choreography, visual, sound design, of course, composition. Uh, fun quotes, the Village Voice said about a piece of hers, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. And it's the, the main piece I, I know of hers called Click. Say, quote, a newly born classic like Steve Reich's clapping music, only a thousand times more virtuosic. Myself, I can't whistle, but afterward, everybody who could did. So, yeah, cool quote. She's won like a bazillion awards, way too many to say here. Bush Foundation Fellowships, five McKnight Foundation Fellowships, eight Minnesota State Arts Board uh, Artist Awards, Meet the Composer, um, and many, many, many more. So, Brian, she's here to, uh, I think, remind us that we got a, we got a lot of work to do. Obviously, absolutely. A lot, <laughs> a lot to do. So anyway, this is the, the great Mary Ellen Childs. Hi. Hello. Well, thank you. And it's, uh, it's great to be here and talk to both of you. Sure. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, gosh, can you just tell us a little bit about, I, I don't know, where you are right now, where you just came back from? I understand you just came back from a, a, a project. Um, yeah, well, right now, that's very moment, I'm in my studio in Minneapolis. Um, I just got back from Los Angeles, where I'm working on a really interesting project out there that is um, headed by two architects. And I'm contributing some music to an opera that they actually put together about um, Pauline Schindler. Um, and before asked to join this project, I did not know about Pauline Schindler, but she's a fascinating woman who was married to the architect Rudolf Schindler. And um, she really had a vision for the home, a very innovative home for the time that her husband then designed and built for them. It was built uh, in 1922. So this year is the centenary uh, celebration of the house and the opera is going to be performed in the Schindler house to a small audience that kind of follows the musicians through the house. Um, I could say a lot more about that, but <laughs> maybe your... I'll just leave that right there. I'm going back in a couple of weeks for the final rehearsals and for the performance. So it, it seems like you're the, the the projects you work on. There's so many different angles that like you're good at <laughs> composition, visual aspects, choreography. I mean, what um what, what is your contribution here, or is it all those things? So I um and am contributing some of the vocal music for the two singers who are in the opera. It's a really kind of a, a clever concept. The piece was originally done about nine years ago, and I was not part of the project then. Um, but the the underpinning instrumental music was by composers that Pauline was friends with or music that was important to her, like John Cage, Henry Cowell. And then the singers were improvising the vocal lines over the top. And um, after that performance, the singers had said to the to the um, the architects who were organizing this piece that if they did it again, they would appreciate having a composer involved to some extent. So mm -hmm. now nine years later, and they're re redoing the piece, restaging the piece, they asked me to come on board. And so I'm contributing maybe two, three areas and a duet. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. I have a quick question here. So now I'm curious. Did you like do things like have to study up on the floor plan of this piece? Like, did is though are those the types of things that influenced what you wrote or things, or do they have no influence on this? Like, how does that all work? Um, to some extent, yes, the floor plan was important because uh, for very practical logistical reasons, whether the singers were with the instrumentalists or whether the instrumentalists were in another part of the house, there is a mm. piano a grand piano that's part of this piece. So of course that's not going to move. Right. <laughs> so I had to know like where the singer is going to be. Um, but it was more knowing um, what it was they were singing about that really, you know, influenced me, you know, uh, the, the libretto was mainly drawn from correspondence between Pauline uh, and other people or between Rudolph and other people. Mm. Um, or other things that either she or he wrote. 
So gotcha. it was really, and all that was put together. So I'm really sort of fitting my role into the vision that was already existing. Right. And of course, when I, as I learned more and more about the piece, as we were talking about it um, before I even joined the project, I was really intrigued by, uh, by who she is, by this architecture, um, by the project, by the way it was all put together and how it was all conceived. So it was, you know, it was very easy for me to to buy into that vision. And interestingly, I did a, I've done a couple other pieces that have something to do with architecture. About, let's see, seven years ago or so, I was commissioned by the Chicago Architectural Biennial to write a piece um, influenced by and to take place in the Farnsworth House, which is a house near Chicago that was um, built by uh, Mies van der Rohe, you know, the architect who said less is more. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I got to learn about the house and spend some time alone in the house, which was actually really a special treat. Um, and then write, actually, I wrote a string quartet that was performed inside the house to small audiences, one of my favorite, favorite commissions. Um, right. So it's not new to me to uh, create work that's part of uh, where architecture is part of the concept now do these pieces get kind of limited to then that space or is this like is this opera that's being performed something that eventually will make its way to other stages and stuff like that i think it's really meant for that space wow that's that's, that's incredible meant for that space yeah and it's it's really what makes it such a special project um i hadn't been inside the space until this last trip that i made that i just got back from so to be inside that house and to envision the performance inside that house with the audience right there. So as they're singing about Rudolph's um, concepts about architecture or Pauline's vision, she had a dream of this house. Um, and then to be inside is uh, really, I think, uh, it's, it would be hard to, to separate that out from, from the concept of the piece. Sure, sure, sure. That makes that makes sense. I this, I could I could go way down the rabbit hole with this because this is absolutely fascinating to me. <laughs> so I, I guess flash, flashing back a little bit, uh, you know, I think the kind of the go to place um, in in your your works that percussionists would probably first look to is the the crash ensemble things. And I, I know we were talking earlier. You had mentioned um, you're just coming back to the some of the crash pieces and how some of them are getting a, a facelift. Can you tell us a little about uh, kind of what's cooking with old crash works becoming new sure. crash works again? Yeah. Well, just to give a little context. So, you know, mostly the percussion pieces, the visual percussion pieces that I created were for my group, own group crash, a, a four member percussion ensemble um, based here in Minneapolis. And most of them were done, I would say I was most active creating work for that group in the 90s, a little bit into the early 2000s. And since then, you know, the group still plays together on occasion, um, but primarily this body of work that was developed then, which includes Click and, uh, and, a, and a, you know, host of other pieces. Um, I would say more recently, a couple of the pieces are taking on a new form. So one that I'm right in the middle of <laughs> uh, is a new version of Drumroll. So Drumroll in its original version was a piece, you know, meant for the concert stage or um, usually. Uh, and it's for four drummers who are on wheeled stools and they um, have this floor choreography where they move from drum to drum uh, around the space as they play. Um, so the piece has been done like that for, uh, you know, a lot of years. idea some time ago to film it by putting GoPros on the foreheads of each of the four players. 
and uh, so that you see the piece from their points of view. Um, so that, that was four GoPro cameras. And then a fifth one was suspended overhead, looking down on the entire floor plan. I call it the June Taylor dancers camera, <laughs> if anybody's <laughs> old enough to remember that reference. Um, and then it's going to be done as an installation with on each of the four walls of a gallery, one of the four players forehead GoPros and then projected onto the floor is the, um, the that overhead camera. So as you walk into the gallery, I think of it as like walking into the inside of the piece, you're seeing everything surrounded by the players points of view, but able to kind of map it out on the floor. Um, and uh, we spent a lot of time, oh my goodness, it was such a challenge to mix this piece, the audio mix. We recorded it with 16 microphones. Almost every drum in the piece was mic. Mm -hmm. um, but then the speakers in the gallery are going to be one speaker over each of the four wall projections. So um, it took a while to wrap my mind around how you have to mix those 16 microphones so that the sound comes from the appropriate screen. because each screen doesn't go with a particular stationary drum. Mm -hmm. So it's not a stationary space. It goes with a Whoa. player's forehead camera. <laughs> so Whoa. you have to, like when player one is at the center drums, or let's say player one is at the stage, you know, downstage drum, that image is gonna be here, but then when they're at that drum, that image is still going to be in their camera or that drum. So you have to mm. mix it so that you're taking the sound that would mm -hmm. normally be in set in space and move it to where the camera is. It's almost like, I mean, if I'm understanding it right, it's almost like you need someone there to do like live mixing and fading. And when this player goes over here, their sound fader goes up to the speaker or I, I'm just, it sounds really hard. That's yeah. exactly right. It was. It took like hours to for me and the 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 engineer to wrap our minds around how it worked. And once I finally got it, I was able to go home and actually color diagram it out in the score, mm -hmm. so that this bit from this player's line would go into that speaker. speaker. And mm -hmm. so once I kind of figured out how to think about that, it was just like you had to think about it in a very different way, not spatially, not well by player but where was the player in space and that that was gonna to go to a particular speaker. So does the sound engineer have to follow the score? Well, so we sat there and I went, you know, this particular this next bit and he could you know see what the kind of the, the next bit was coming from how did it go uh well i could i could tell him which track it was from and which speaker it needed to go to mm -hmm. so i had my color-coded score in front of me and we basically kind of went through it one part at a time or one chunk at a time one part at a time and just placed it and mm -hmm. uh it turned out great. <laughs> was that, um, I'm always curious, like, it, it was that um, the sound engineer's decision? Hey, we're going to use 16 mics, we're going to use 10 mics, we're going to like, was that your call, his call? Well, it was one person who recorded it and somebody else who mixed it. Mm -hmm. So it was um, the, the, um, the sound guy that I work with on the recording is someone that I typically work with in live performance. So he basically mic'd it the way we do in live performance, and he likes to mic every single drum. Okay. Um, he also will typically put a microphone on each player, 
And if we had done that, it might have been a lot easier because that would follow the sound. But in the end, in the moment, we decided we can't use those because we were getting too much extraneous sound yeah. from clothing. And we tried the mic here and the sound wasn't as good. And so um, we ended up doing this other tedious process. And I think that the 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 result is going to be the best anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. You, you had time to really workshop it and work it out. I mean, I know sometimes like, hey, you have your sound check and it's I mean, the sound engineer <laughs> working in the back of the hall has no time to figure out the best thing to deal with. OK, I have a voice mic here. I've got a mic on my on my instruments and and there's playback speakers. It's like, ooh, that's really, you know, if we had an hour, they would figure it out great but it's like okay one run of the piece good luck yeah mm. yeah that's true I mean it helps to work with people that I've worked with a lot mm -hmm. had so. you worked with had you worked with the mixer before you said you worked with the sound engineer how about the mixer had he been a part of your projects before yeah I'd worked with him not for a while um but we had worked together before and of course for both of us this was something that we really had to kind of puzzle through to figure out how, mm. how to do it sure cool and then at the end it wasn't that hard it was just like my brain hurt though trying to figure it out oh it, it's yeah it's a whole maze to just try and navigate just one yeah. player through and then okay now it's time for player two it's a different path and, oh yeah. yeah it's yeah it makes sense but yeah it's just my like my brain is melting just thinking yeah. about how many hours <laughs> you had to sit there and do that it's yeah i'm sure worth it but wow <laughs> Yeah. So that piece um, will be shown in uh, at uh, the art gallery at Truman State University uh, in Kirksville, Missouri, uh, opening on October 20th and it'll run for, I think, three or four weeks or so. So in the gallery, it will be on a loop and it will just run uh, continuously. Mm -hmm. Have you been to Kirksville yet? Not yet. Oh, okay. You get to take a teeny tiny plane. <laughs> yep. teeny tiny plane like they when i went there and this is this is michael bump's school for those of you yeah. uh you, you, you listeners some of you probably know mike bump but um yeah one of those planes like teeny tiny as in they weigh you and they assign your seat based on your your weight yeah. and they weigh they weigh your luggage and they put your, your luggage on the right part of the plane yeah, right well, well and and uh at percussion podcast trivia uh one of the uh founders there megan arns student. original founder is a student is an alumni of truman state and uh, a percussion nice. alum she graduated yep. she that's graduated. right she graduated from that percussion <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yep she graduated yep she's earned her earned her degree from that percussion uh well let's see so um gosh you have a few other pieces getting a facelift right a new commission um, and a, a side of hand piece? Yes, that's right. So side of hand, um, a couple years ago, we that also became a video piece, a single channel video piece, just, you know, no <laughs> multiple videos. Um, that piece is for, um, is a body percussion piece that's, that I based on ham boning patterns, clapping games and also baseball coaching signals turned into body percussion and because of that last uh that the, the last thing the the baseball coaching signals we filmed it um at a saint paul saints minor league baseball game uh in the stands and on the grounds and an extra day of shooting where there was no one in the stands so we could really be on the field and edited that together intercut with live baseball action um so that was a, just a fun a fun project to do kind of wild <laughs> um, wild to record in the middle of a baseball game i'll bet can, yeah. can you talk a little about your your influence i know you get i know you get asked this all the time i'm sure um but yeah i mean where do these ideas come from you know where where does all this visual aspect come from well i think um it really goes back to uh, when I was first starting to compose. And so I, I really didn't start until I was in graduate school, a little bit before that, um, at the University of Illinois. And um, I, was, I was always interested in the way percussionists move. It, it really started from that, that I would go to an orchestra concert and I would often find myself watching the percussionists at the back of the ensemble because their playing technique is so physical, but I also found it was very, how 
performers executed that was also very individual. Like each one had their own sort of mo movement personality, um, maybe guided by the sound and what was needed to elicit the sound, but the movement on its own was really interesting to me. So when I started writing for percussion, I pretty quickly found myself wanting to uh, exploit that. Um, and I should also say that going way back, I have a background as a as a choreographer, as a dancer and a choreographer, and I was actually making dances before I was writing music. So I think also when I started composing, I was drawn towards working with choreographers, for instance. And I did that also for quite a while. And then at a certain point, this was early on, I felt like um, sometimes that collaboration uh, didn't feel like the two were fully integrated, the movement component and the sound component were fully integrated. So there was a certain point where I stopped working with choreographers and started building it into percussion pieces in a way that I felt like, oh, this is a true integration of movement, choreography, and, and sound. Um, I now have worked with choreographers again <laughs> um, and you know, found really satisfying ways to do that. But at the time, it was sort of this mix of reasons that I started really thinking about percussion, movement, choreography and, and it being an integral, integral part of the composition. So I started to think of, you know, the composer's palette is pitch and timbre and uh, rhythm, but in those pieces also part of that palette was movement. Um, so it was something that was really not added on afterwards, but was, a, was part of the compositional process that you had to think through all those things at the same time. So, so now I'm curious, kind of going along with that, I, I heard in an interview, I think that you'd said that these initial pieces that you had written for this, at first, you were kind of very protective of them, you really only wanted your ensemble playing them. And then over time, you kind of said, well, okay, let's see what some other people do. I'm just curious as to why were you so protective of them at first? Were you worried that people were just not going to do the the choreography side justice or or or, or make something out of it that you didn't want? I had forgotten about that till you brought that up. <laughs> it was so long ago, but yeah, I think I wasn't sure that some of the pieces could be done without personal coaching. And so there was a period of time when I felt like I needed to go and teach the piece or I needed to send a member of my group to teach the piece. And that did happen early on. Okay. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I, I had to, I think the first thing was with click. Um, and, and I will say that was the pieces that could not be notated in standard notation. So pieces like Still Life, which is for three drummers and it's fully written out, that I had no problem sending off somewhere with some extra notes. Mm -hmm. um, but the pieces that included some kind of choreography, I just, um, I, I wasn't, I, I think I, for a while I wasn't sure that they uh, could be done. And then um, I had to kind of make some more detailed notes when I when I so back up a second, when I create a piece like that for crash, something that couldn't easily be notated in standard notation in order to also show the movement. And um, these were pieces that for, for the most part, I was developing in rehearsal. So not like a string quartet that I would write or even a, a drumming piece that could be fully written out. Um, I felt like I needed to be in the room with the players in order to create it so that I could see how the logistics would work. You know, I couldn't imagine, like, how long does it take to get from this drum to this drum on a set of wheels? Sure, sure. <laughs> how, do, how do I really figure that all out in my mind and know mm -hmm. that it's going to work? Um, so, but to be in the room, you can do that much more quickly. Right. Um, and also just seeing how things come together, kind of looking at things and deciding yes, no. Mm -hmm. uh, so those, those things were developed in rehearsal. So they didn't have, um, they didn't, they didn't need standard scores. Sure. Um, because it was working more like a choreographer might work where right. the the players are learning the piece as you're creating it and if a score is really a way to communicate with performers and tell them 
as a composer, here's what you should do. Well, we were doing that live in the room. Right. So we didn't need a different kind of communication. We didn't need that sort of standard notation and communication, gotcha. at least to start. <laughs> sure. So, so, yeah. so early on, since that didn't exist, that was another reason it felt you know, difficult to, to mm. know that if I sent off some information, uh, how, how could it actually be achieved? Realized in the way that you would want to be representative of your work. Yeah, and even now that I have much more detailed notes for these pieces, I feel like the video itself is an important part of the score. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So really yeah. need that to, to mm -hmm. learn these. Brian, have you done a visual piece? I don't think so. Have you ever done Not that? Not really. There's the one that when you and I were both writing for Keith Aleo, yeah. there's some visual elements to that. Like you have to sign your name on the gong with a triangle beater and stuff. So the visual uh -huh. element of doing that, but nothing where it's, um, and I think there's a couple little things where it's like swipe down, swipe right, so things mm. like that, but nothing nearly to the 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 detail of what of what the two of you have done. I'm gonna steal that sign your name on the gong thing. I'm gonna edit that portion out and just yeah. take it. Yeah. It's fine. I, my gift my gift to you. I'm sure Thanks someone else you. did it well before I did. <laughs> the um um well, well speaking of like yeah some standardized way of of doing this and I, I mean I think yeah Brian and I like you know you you build on the notation that already exists um, of course and it's been mentioned on the show in the past that, you know, why don't composers use Laban notation? So I thought it'd be great to ask a, a dancer and choreographer, uh, yeah, why not use Laban notation? Well, the short answer is because I don't know it. <laughs> and you're a dancer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not the way, uh, I would say most dancers don't know it and don't work that way. You usually mm -hmm. work, you know, live in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I know of it. I know what it's capable of. It's capable of, you know, very detailed movements, but I'm kind of a, I, I believe in being as practical as possible. <laughs> and um, I just found ways that I think are easier to communicate. So if I don't know it, mm. and if percussion players I want to work with, don't know it then it's really not that useful mm. it has potential but in practical very practical terms um i mean it's just uh not that useful yeah yeah that was kind of the conclusion we got to too why not build on the language we already know and i feel like visual i mean we all grow up doing marching band and most of us drummers it's like already like hey the note head changes to this symbol meaning you do this different thing like it's not it's not hard to it's like it's, it gets visual very soon you know um so yeah i think i completely agree but on the um, well but on the other side of that as well like a normal note head going to an x okay that means a rim shot well rim shot is a pretty standard fare but i would imagine that the Levon notation going to a certain gesture. Well, there's so many different gestures of just wave your right. arm. That's like it's it, the the minutia of detail there is gets lost pretty pretty immediately as opposed to just mm -hmm. play normal, play a rim shot. But like but like click the the notation. I mean, it's not it's already kind of familiar. Like this sure. asterisk means hit the player to your right. This asterisk oh, means right, hit right, the right. player to your left. Which like oh yeah, I remember from playing other drum pieces when we like play on each other's drums back and forth right. like the note heads are up now and so it's like it already like it's already kind of you it know, does transfer yeah like the yeah. transfer isn't okay. too far away so yeah Fair it's, enough. It's, yeah yeah why learn a whole new language so, right and anyway, it's just a fun thing that's come up on the show over the years you, you oh. your your pieces and and click you know clicks the one i have experience with and i think like a, there's a couple like really golden percussion pieces I know of that they, they happen to be visual. Uh, the other one I can think of that is a trio is Terry DeMay's Table Music, which we, we've all played. And it, when I played Click in Houston as a student forever ago, I, you know, talking to everyone afterwards, little kids were just overjoyed saying that was so cool. That was so much fun. 
um, all, all the regular public, maybe with music background, maybe not, just loved it, had a blast with it. But also the composition faculty that was here that night to hear the whatever variety of uh, composers that, <laughs> that were also there that night um, were just thrilled. They just thought the piece was amazing and they had so many questions and things to ask about it. And usually those three things don't live in harmony. Like the thing that little kids are just like, wow, that was cool. And the thing that composers look for usually those aren't aren't working together so it's like a really amazing piece and i i just wanted to ask you do you, do you know what it is about your writing that that gives it that uh, amazing thing well um first of all thank you that's really gratifying to hear because i i've often thought like those things are not mutually exclusive like something can be um enjoyable and you know whatever the other qualities are rigorously constructed or intellectually satisfying in fact i really appreciate and i i think one of the one of the things i strive to do in my music is sort of find um to satisfy the the kinesthetic sense satisfy the 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 human body <laughs> and the um and, and emotion as well as the the intellect so um i for me one of the things that especially in a piece like click that i am working with is kind of an element of the unexpected or of surprise in order to get to something unexpected you actually have to set up an expectation so it's kind of working it's fun to kind of play those things off one another you know to set up a windshield wiper pattern and then suddenly have like one stroke fly up way up in the air um, or to set it up one way and turn it around the other way. I think also what I do in a lot of the visual percussion pieces is is uh, come up with a clear concept and then uh, kind of push at the limitations of that. So in addition to kind of thinking, putting in the back of my mind as I was creating click, like what would create that element of unexpectedness? Um, it's also like what more can i do with claves <laughs> what more can i do to kind of push at what is possible what more can i do with um, three players standing shoulder to shoulder and playing on their own and each other's claves and um, and i find like that's often where that spark of creativity happens is to have this container this clear concept with, within which you're going to remain but then like pushing at the edges of those limitations to do everything possible mm -hmm. yeah use your material i mean yeah it's it's amazing how much you get and how many just variations on this there are like i think of the drop stick part and just how clever it is it's so simple you're doing the same thing you just drop your left hand at the right the right counts and they're all within eight and it's so visually satisfying um, and yeah, how you're able to take such a simple ingredient and turn it into a, a whole piece. It's, it's very, I mean, classically, you know, uh, well, you know composition. It's, it's kind of amazing what, how you can kind of keep going. I've for, forgotten about this till now, but I actually have a couple other click pieces. <laughs> cool. I did, let's see, how did it first come about? It came about because I strung together a whole evening. Um, this was now probably 25 years ago, at least a whole evening of visual percussion pieces. And in order to create a through line, I think we kept coming back to click material. So I created some more, um, some more click, uh, shorter, like a minute here, three minutes there. And then there was a dance company in Milwaukee that asked me to create uh, a piece for them. 
that was using clave. So um, I could do a little bit more with movement, having the dancers move around the space, but they really were doing some kind of the, the same concept of uh, having these claves in their hands and playing rhythms on their own claves and on each other's claves. So. Yeah, and, and even, I mean, even more impressive, all the gestures are things anybody can do. Mm. You know, I mean, there's there's like the paradiddle patterns, like it's kind of hard to get around sometimes, but it's like, no, really, I mean, anyone can do these things, you know, it's, it's uh... Yeah, as a matter of fact, the first versions of click were not all percussionists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, two, two dancers. Yeah. yeah, when I started putting the, the piece together, there were some early like one minute precursors that were done in workshop settings. Mm -hmm. um, but when I really said, okay, I'm going to make a full blown piece out of this. Uh, I hired one percussionist and two dancers to join me for rehearsals. And the reason I did that was I knew that I, how I needed to work on this, that I needed to work in rehearsal, sort of trying out material and working with it on the spot and, you know, discarding, altering, and then saying to the performers, okay, that's the final version. Remember that. And uh, I, I knew that dancers work like that all the time and they had developed that skill and they thought it was normal. I wasn't sure that percussionists who were used to having standard notation up in front of them, that they would think that was normal. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, sort of having that mix of people who were used to working that way and then a percussionist who really knew rhythm in the way that I was working with rhythm that, that made for an ensemble that had all of those qualities together. So you, you were, mentioning before about the idea of setting up expectation and then kind of tearing that expectation down into a way to surprise. Uh, today, listening to a couple of your other pieces, I think it was uh, And So, but as well a movement of Dreamhouse, there are, there are portions where all of a sudden, I know at least in the string quartet, where all of a sudden the they start singing and I was completely caught, I was, I, that completely caught me off guard. And then I think in And So, I think they have to whistle at some point as well, if I remember right, maybe I'm confusing this with something else, but I was just curious, is that another example for you of like, hmm, what can I do here now? I've set up this, this environment, what is going to make the audience go, whoa, whoa, whoa what just happened? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, um, the, the string quartet where they uh, sing is not uh, Dreamhouse, it's actually another piece called Ephemeral Geometry. Okay. Um, but it was written for the same group that plays okay. Dreamhouse Ethel. And partly it, yes. that, I mean, it's certainly it's that idea of surprise and what else can I do? But also it was, I knew that there was uh, one of the uh, violinists is also a fantastic singer. And so, you know, you can Play write on those strings. For, yeah, you, we can write for string quartet, but I was writing for those people. Right. And, uh, you know, the same for most of the ensembles that I write for. I'm writing for for not just that ensemble, but those that person. Musicians. Yeah. What, what, and so those things kind of pop in your mind because you know who you're writing for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and what better way to make the piece truly personal to them? I mean, yeah. that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, I originally wrote the part just for Kip to sing. And then the other players were like, I can sing too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of those things where it's so wonderful working uh, with musicians in rehearsal because things get further developed when you're in the room together, just like sure. with the fashion stuff. Right. No, that's awesome. Yeah. It's good to hear a composer that uh, cares if what they write is going to work. <laughs> we get, we, I mean, we're trying new music all the time and it's just, it's just, well, I don't care. You got to suspend eight drums from the ceiling. Have fun. You know, that's, that's what I asked for. Oh, well, yeah. I'm a genius. I wrote, I, yeah, just, just get nine concert bass drums and suspend them from the ceiling. I don't care how you do it. Well, or in, in even the more mundane, I just talked to our percussion methods class yesterday about the, okay, well, if I'm playing snare drum and now you want me to play crash cymbals, well, I need time to put down sticks and pick up crash. Cymbals. And how many times is that ignored by composers? Like, oh no, you just, you just do it. I don't know. Figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Sometimes it's wishful thinking. <laughs> like I really want them to play that fast. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm always happy to work with performers and sort of, and I'll often tell them like I'm working on a piece right now with an uh, ensemble that is two percussion, uh, uh, clarinet, doubling bass clarinet and keyboards. 
and you know as we're in rehearsal i say to them like in this place the exact notes are not all that crucial so if changing the pattern a little bit here or there is going to help you play it with more fluidity let's just do that because it isn't that it has to be ex this exact sequence of notes it could be two two could be transposed and the mm. effect will be the same because of you know what the pattern is it doesn't essentially change the effect yeah sure okay. uh, that's so often the case for us too it's like gosh if these two notes were just reversed it would suddenly be very very idiomatic and yeah of course you know 99 times out of 100 the composer wants it to be more fluid they care more about the performance than uh, the exact yeah, you know, specific right. note yeah right yeah right. yeah um i'm really i'm let me shift gears as we're coming towards the end here i'm i'm um I'm just a little curious how all these projects you do. I mean, it seems like you just go from big project to big project to big project, and you've really stretched a, your, your whole career um, is, is just doing what, what I think a lot of people dream about. You know, I think about when I was in grad school or even now, like I occasionally have like this cool collaborative project that's going to be in an art gallery or, or, or something. But I mean, months go by, <laughs> you know, sometimes years go by between those types of opportunities and uh you've turned it into a a, a nine to five and I'd, I'd just love to know how that how that happens well uh <laughs> it's not always that way um i mean right now it's it, this is all i do and i have four pretty major projects that i'm i'm working on all simultaneously um which is un a little bit unusual but I'm kind of surprised that it's working so well. So I've got the opera Colleen, um, the drum roll gallery installation, a new piece for Zeitgeist in St. Paul called North, which is based on my residency in the Arctic. And it's also gonna be an installation with an hour's worth of music and melting ice and projections. And, uh, and then um, a new piece, a new percussion piece, actually, for Truman State University, which I'm very excited about because it's kind of bringing me back to the way that I used to work with my group Crash, but finding a way for me to sort of speed up that process. So still tailor the piece for them, but make it be um, more uh, kind of pre-compose some of it. So it's this mix of pre-composed and working directly with the ensemble. But, um, you know, I now really devote all my time to composing, but over the course of my entire career, I, I've never had a full-time teaching gig, but I have taught occasionally, and I have also had, you know, uh, jobs in the arts that have really um, made my composing life possible financially because otherwise it, it isn't always on its own and because i found that arts administration work to be also a very creative endeavor and i enjoyed supporting other artists so i ran a fellowship program for dancers and choreographers for a number of years um, but i really i often say this to my students i really believe that having a diversified portfolio is the way to go so um, if you really expect to do everything on commission and, and that's all you're ever going to do, well, that, that may work for a, a small number of people, but for most of us, it doesn't. So I work on commission. I also um, uh, seek out uh, grant and other support in, other, in order to create projects, you know, like the drum roll installation, like the installation for um, North, where um, I'm... Um, uh sort of the project director as well as the the artist the lead artist the com the composer um and then um other ways you know for some people it's teaching uh for some not for me but for some it might be conducting uh for yeah. others it might be performing and so you know when one increases but when one i should say when one decreases then you have other things to kind of fill in uh the gap so that sort of diversified portfolio means that you're always busy you've always mm -hmm. got something going was there something um i don't know something that made you make a decision like I, i'm not going to have a full-time teaching job I, I think you mentioned that you've done residencies and of course you've done sabbatical replacements so I, I imagine the you know certainly if you wanted to you could 
get a composition uh, job at a university if you wanted to. Is there a, a reason why you've chosen specifically not to? I did make a conscious decision pretty early on after graduate school. I, I had a, a job briefly. Um, it was a one semester sabbatical replacement, and I, I really enjoy teaching. I could definitely, I could have seen myself doing it, but I had been in school for nine years. I had been five years as an undergraduate, four years as a graduate, nine years. I, I was just, I just felt like I need to be out of that environment. And I also felt just personally for me very strongly that if I wanted to teach composition, that I needed to be a composer first. And so in my mind, I was going to pursue that life. And then at some point later on, I would seek out a teaching position. And that never actually came about. <laughs> I never really uh, strongly went after a, a teaching position <laughs> later on. Um, but I'm very grateful that I've had these opportunities to to teach because I really I find it so um, stimulating to be around uh, young composers. And I learn so much by teaching, as I'm sure everybody who's a teacher understands that. Um, and I just enjoy doing it. Mm, cool. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, geez, Mary Ellen Childs, thanks so much for joining us it's been a goal of mine to talk to you for a long time um so this is cool and um brian thanks a lot good to see you buddy always a pleasure thanks for having me thank you so much sure all right see you all later appreciate it bye bye, -bye. Thank <laughs> you.